On May 24th, U.S. President Joe Biden walked into the White House's Roosevelt Room. He stepped up to the microphone, and he told Americans he'd hoped he would not have to give the speech he was about to give. Another massacre, Uvalde, Texas, an elementary school. Beautiful, innocent, second, third, fourth graders. Tragically shot and killed earlier that day. The parents who will never see their child again, never have them jump in bed and cuddle with them. There was a lot of sadness, but there was also anger and frustration. At one point, the president found himself asking Americans a question. When in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done? For many Americans, the gun lobby is synonymous with three letters. N-R-A. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I can't think of an organization like the NRA elsewhere in the world. Journalist Peter Charlie lived in the U.S. for many years, but Australia is where he was born and raised. We reached him at Al Jazeera's headquarters in Doha, Qatar, the place he now calls home. There are plenty of pro-gun organizations that exist around the world, but the NRA is unique in its power, in the grip it has over lawmakers in America. It very much controls the legislative agenda. Some members of Congress have received up to $13 million. And we called up Peter because not too long ago, he took Al Jazeera inside the NRA, quite literally. It's on, recording. It's recording. To find out exactly how their lobbying efforts work. If you oppose the NRA's position, then they do everything they can to hurt you. And because of that, pretty much everything the NRA wants, Congress gives them. But what is the NRA? Where did it come from? We're going to start from the beginning. We'll also talk to an insider and hear secret recordings along the way, including those from Peter's undercover investigation for Al Jazeera on how business got done. I mean, we we saw it with the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012, a huge outcry within the United States for gun reform. There was the Orlando, Florida massacre, 49 people killed there. Las Vegas massacre, 59 people killed there. You know, they just go on and on, the massacre at Parkland and, of course, this latest atrocity in Texas. And I think there will be no movement towards any meaningful gun reform in America again. So, first question, how did the NRA start? The NRA started in a very humble way, actually, in 1871, 151 years ago. It was started by a couple of Civil War veterans who had truly sort of honourable thoughts about how to improve accuracy for veterans who are notoriously bad shooters, just to make sure there was more gun safety in America, really. The National Rifle Association has made possible the training of thousands of instructors. In fact, 
the NRA in its very early days was responsible for some very serious moves towards gun reform and gun safety. It really only became radicalised, if you like, in 1977 during a sort of a hostile takeover at one of the conventions where an extreme right-wing group seized control of the NRA. The National Rifle Association convention in Cincinnati went into overtime last night. In the 1970s, Ryan Bussey, a gun owner raised by Democrats, was growing up in northwestern Kansas. Yeah, rural northwestern Kansas, a ranch and wheat farm in western Kansas, yeah. He remembers the NRA as a really positive part of his upbringing. You know, I grew up, guns were, for me and for many people like me, a very healthy part of their life. I worked hard on the ranch. My parents did. We didn't have a lot of time to have fun when we did. It often involved guns, hunting, shooting. My grandfather, who was a proud Roosevelt Democrat, his favorite hat was this old black and gold NRA hat to him and to my father. And then certainly to the early years of my childhood, the NRA represented this sort of gun collector, safety, camaraderie, hunting sort of organization that promoted guns, but did so in a responsible way and held these safety classes. The same sort of responsibility and decency that I had been raised with was still evident, both in our political life in America, but certainly in the firearms industry, there were self-imposed decencies, there were rules, there were norms that you did not cross. It was a much different organization. I never saw, ever, or heard of anybody open carrying, anybody armed intimidating, anybody ever marching into capitals with AR-15s. Today, the grand total of industry criticism of all that stuff amounts to a great big fat zero. That's how much the politics has been transformed. So how did the NRA transform from teaching about gun safety to aggressively advocating against gun control while the number of gun deaths in the U.S. continued its steady rise? There were several folks, Harlan Carter, and there was sort of a coup at the NRA where these folks said, no, we need to be more political. We need we need to attack this in a more culture war-ish, aggressive way. And they did set the course then starting in 1977. We believe that the right to keep and bear arms is a salient part of the American tradition. That's Harlan Carter speaking. According to his own confession, he murdered a 15-year-old Latino boy, Ramon Cassiano, after a fight near Carter's home in Laredo, Texas. Harlan, who's white, shot the boy in the chest. He was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison, but the conviction was overturned. In a statement decades later, he wrote that he regretted the incident. As an adult, Carter worked as an officer in the Border Patrol and in 1950 would become the first head of that organization. Years later, in 1977, in Cincinnati, Ohio, Harlan Carter was elected the executive vice president of the NRA. A stormy all-night session. When it was over, some dissident members had taken control of the 400,000-member organization. And that moment is when many say the NRA changed. Going forward, it was more centralized, with less dissent. And its membership grew by as much as 300%. Here's Ryan again. 
But like all large organizations, it didn't instantly happen. There wasn't a big lobbying force already in place. They didn't have a political structure. By the time I was probably a teenager, a few political messages started to creep into the NRA magazines. By the time I was starting in the industry, it was getting pretty political, but there was still a separation between the gun industry and the NRA. So I take it because of that culture of decency, the respect for this weapon, there wasn't a lot of hesitation in your family when you decided to enter the industry. Is that right? No, I think there would be, if it happened today, I think um, my dad or, or my mom or whoever would say, gosh, are you sure you want to get into that? That looks kind of dangerous. But that's not the way it was at all then. So you were working for Kimber. How would you describe Kimber for a, an audience's that's not familiar with guns. First, when I started, it was a small fledgling, paycheck bouncing, <laughs> crazy, you know, sort of small company like many small companies are. But we grew it into what would become the sort of BMW, Porsche, Jaguar of the industry. So very high end, expensive, high quality, no AR-15s, all classically designed, old designed guns. And you weren't just selling guns, you were also lobbying for the industry. What did that entail? What, what was your day-to-day -day like? One of the things that I did absorb early on is that everybody was like a lobbyist for the industry. The industry was small. There was this idea that it was graying and that it was slowly going away. So it was this sort of tight camaraderie of like, we're all in this together. I think this is important because as I look back on it now, it's a key to how people can become easily radicalized. I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was radicalized, but I did, I did end up partaking in activities that I wished I wouldn't have because I helped persecute gun companies and CEOs that kind of stepped out of line. Persecute. Talk to me about what you were doing back then. During the Clinton administration, the tobacco settlements, which we still live with today, right? Marketing restrictions and, and the way tobacco, specifically cigarettes, can be bought and sold. Those were the result of a long list of municipal and state lawsuits against the tobacco industry. And when those settlements happened, then these new policies came into place. That was part of the agreement. Well, those same sort of lawsuits were being filed and threatened against many gun companies. Kimber was never named in them, but almost all other larger gun companies were. And as that went on, there was an immense amount of pressure. The deal was the lawsuits would be dismissed if they did this. And the CEO from Smith & Wesson, his name is Ed Schultz, surprising everybody in the industry, announced an agreement that he had cut behind the scenes with the Clinton administration. Ed Schultz committed to gun control measures, mandatory trigger locks on Smith & Wesson guns, and the eventual development of smart guns, guns with technology that prevents anyone but the owner from firing the gun. The company also agreed to strict marketing limits, which threatened the industry's bottom line. And that may have been the most important measure, Ryan says. It shocked everybody in the industry. And the thought was like, holy crap, if this goes through, these rules are going to be imposed on us. It's going to be harder to sell guns. We don't want this. The NIA put out its talking points and I helped lead a boycott against Smith & Wesson so that we could send a message to everybody else in the industry, like, don't you dare sign up for this. This is what will happen to you. And it did happen to Smith & Wesson. They were almost run out of business. Uh, six months after Ed Schultz stood on the stage with President Clinton, he was fired. The company sold 
some weeks after that, Smith & Wesson obviously revived itself. It was sold to a group of investors who made nice with the NRA after that, and they backed out of that agreement. Wow. So that tells you what that corrective action did. Yeah. Now, as far as my regrets, the policies prescriptions that were agreed to by Smith & Wesson, some of them were well thought out. Some of them weren't. But what I am quite, I don't know about ashamed, but like regretful of is that I helped set forth what I think is this all or nothing hateful politics in the United States where people are trolled out of existence and where you can lose your job for speaking up, you know, and eventually these same tactics were used on me. Right before the Smith and Wesson takedown, something else happened in the United States that affected the gun industry. But more than that, it affected the country. They just came in and they started shooting. Everybody was saying, get down, get down. And me and my friend Zach were getting our food at lunch. What has been a day of horror in Littleton, Colorado, just south of Denver, where just before the lunch break today at Columbine High School, at least two young men, perhaps students, perhaps former students, went in and began firing on the students who live there. Now, that shooting has come to be known by a single word, Columbine. It was the deadliest school shooting in the United States at the time. Twelve students and one teacher died. Columbine happens in April of 1999. The NRA has what we now know, um, thanks to enterprising reporters, behind-the-scenes conversation about how to respond to Columbine. The options essentially boiled down to, should we be part of the solution, or should we get in the culture war business and say hell no and ramp it up? And they chose the latter. Decades after Columbine, NPR, National Public Radio, received secret recordings of NRA executives at that time. The conversation was about whether or not they would continue to hold their convention days later and what kind of political impact that would have. At the same period where they're going to be burying these children, we're going to be having media within 10 miles of our convention center, the world's media, trying to run through the exhibit hall looking at kids fondling firearms, which is going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible juxtaposition. We, we watched from afar. They held the business meetings where we didn't know what was being said. We didn't know they were being recorded. We did start to recognize the hell no aspects of the NRA soon after that. So I guess we had to assume some sort of decision was made in the, in, inside those walls. And not long after that, you have Charlton Heston's famous from my cold dead hands standing on stage holding the musket up. We set out this year to defeat the divisive forces that would take freedom away. I want to say those fighting words for everyone within the sound of my voice to hear and to heed, and especially for you, Mr. Gore. <laughs> From my cold, dead hands. And so that became the politics of the NRA. In 2000, after Heston's speech, George W. Bush would become president, not Mr. Al Gore. The next big achievement for the organization was in 2004, Ryan says. The assault weapons ban, banning AR-15s, had been in place for 10 years. It was set to expire. 2004, the assault weapons ban was not renewed by President Bush. And then in 2005, importantly, President Bush signs PLACA, which is the Protection and Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And what that did is dissolve all of those lawsuits that we were just talking about. 
about Smith and Wesson and future lawsuits could not be filed having to do with any liability from irresponsible marketing. It was sort of like, well, guess anything goes now. They're coming after us with a vengeance to destroy us, to destroy us in every ounce of our freedom. Then the NRA really started perfect the racism and the hatred and the conspiracy theory. It started. They want to change America, change our culture. They want to change our values. And then that really, really ramped up as America's first black president, Barack Obama, when it became evident that he was going to become our president. Then then this whole conflagration of stuff that I described to you, it was like a well-oiled machine there. You know, Obama is meeting and plotting with the who's who of the gun ban movement, scheming to create a gun control by bureaucracy. And it went all in on, on purely partisan politics. That started to drive gun sales. The same thing that drive those political actions, drive gun sales, hate, fear, conspiracy, racism. And then the industry and the NRA, because of business interests and political interests and sort of profit motives, boom. Well, guns and ammunition are among the items that Walmart is bringing back to stores. Record gun sales at Smith & Wesson. They say they just can't keep up with demand. America's divisive debate on gun control has turned into a blessing for the arms industry. Skyrocketing sales of rifles and ammunition has been reported, arguably making it even harder for future mass shootings to possibly be prevented. Why does it work? What do you think it is about these tactics that seems to have a hold on people? It, it, it works. Clearly. Well, it, it has to do with forming up and modifying definitions of culture, then creating a fear-based system around the loss of that culture, then unifying every single person to fight against that loss. And when you do that, you end up accepting a lot of really disastrous, <laughs> nefarious people because you're told, look, if they're on our side, forget if they're Steve Bannon, forget if they're Ted Cruz, forget, doesn't matter how bad they are, they're on our side, accept them. And so there's no, no dissent from inside an organization like that. It only becomes ever more radical. That's what the industry became. And frankly, that's what I think the Republican Party has become. Around this same time, 2018, our colleague with Al Jazeera's investigative team, Peter Charlie, was also making progress getting inside the NRA. We infiltrated the NRA. I managed to get a couple of undercover reporters to go inside the organization and spend some years inside the NRA looking at the way they operate, recording secretly on hidden cameras and microphones. Here in Louisville, Kentucky, at the NRA annual meetings, I'm very pleased to have with us uh, Roger Muller, who is here all the way from... Sydney, Australia. My yeah. goodness gracious. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of conversations that the NRA were having on such very sensitive matters as how to deal with the public fallout when there's a massacre, a school shooting. And we recorded some absolutely extraordinary material that really gave an insight into how these people think, how they feel. NRA officials suggested strategies to Peter's team that included smearing gun control advocates one suggestion was that they accused their political enemies of, quote, standing on the graves of children. How dare you stand on the graves of those children to put forth your political agenda? Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Shame them to a whole idea. I love that. If your policy isn't good enough to stand on its own, how dare you use their best to push that forward? Mm. Mm. That's really good. That's a great one. Yeah. At another point, a woman explained to the team how the NRA plants articles that appear to be written by local officials. They're actually written by the NRA. There's a lot of times we'll write them for like a local sheriff in Wisconsin or whatever. And we, he'll draft it or she will help us draft it. We'll do a lot of the legwork because these people are busy and this is our job. So we'll help them and then they'll submit it with their name on it so that it, it looks organic, you know, that it's coming from that community. But we will have a role behind the scenes. Peter says it gave him a very clear picture of what was going on. Really was a truly fascinating and very chilling insight into the way the gun lobby operates in America. When I look back at some of the conversations, I was absolutely gobsmacked at what they'd actually recorded, what the NRA had said to them. They also spoke to people on many levels of the NRA about school shootings specifically. Regular convention goers, people in their media division, senior lobbyists. The thing that struck me is a lack of empathy. They didn't seem to genuinely express any sympathy for the families of uh, children who'd been killed. Now, they probably were shocked when these things happened, but they were laughing about the number of uh, messages they received in the wake of a massacre. In fact, one of the people said, well, you know, if you go up to my office, there's a hole in the wall the size of my head from banging my head against the wall in frustration at these messages that just keep coming. And everyone laughed. They all thought it was hilarious. There is something in the way they laid out in a calculating and cold way the methods they employ to shut up the opposition, to force out voices that they don't want to hear to close down questions from journalists and, and to silence people who hold the view that gun reform is necessary. They just want those people to be crushed and silenced and sent away for good. Peter's three-part film came out in 2019. And so far, he says, not much has changed. They have tightened their security levels to make sure that no one gets in there with a hidden camera again. But no, I don't think uh, our report really changed much at all in the way they do business. They have been going through their own problems, of course. There have been internal disputes and uh, claims of excess expenditure on the, on the part of Wayne LaPierre, the, the CEO who's accused of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on expensive dinners and trips away to the Bahamas and very expensive suits. And, you know, there was one report that came out that he spent $39,000 in a Xenia store in Beverly Hills just in a single day shopping. Um, things like that are rattling some of the rank and file within the NRA. But still, Wayne LaPierre was just at the last convention reappointed as the CEO. So he's still hanging in there. He's still a very powerful individual. And the NRA, though its numbers may be dwindling, perhaps, 
and its finances are reported to be going down, but they're still very strong. That organization is still a very, very influential, very powerful organization in the United States. At that last NRA convention, right after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, Wayne LaPierre insisted the NRA wants to see change too. There are certain things we can do. NRA members know that to be true. There are absolutely certain things we can and must do. Where we part ways with the president and many in his party is on the policy question and what we can and should do to prevent the hate-filled, vile monsters who walk among us from committing their evil. Restricting the fundamental human right of law-abiding Americans to defend themselves is not the answer. It never has been. Despite what Wayne LaPierre and his legendary gun lobby says, both President Biden and U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi say they will try to revive the ban on AR-15s, the gun used to shoot and kill so many children in Uvalde, Texas, along with other assault rifles. So we asked Ryan and Peter if they thought gun control could be implemented again in the United States. Ryan now works for Giffords, a major gun control organization in the U.S. It sounds like the problem is a cultural problem. It is deeply rooted. So is it possible to make the gun reform lobby more successful in the United States than the gun lobby? Yeah, so I think that can happen. You know, 10,000 people have asked me, like, okay, if background checks polls at 85%, then my God, why can't we get it passed? I know there are millions of responsible gun owners out there who feel that, who are done, tired, fed up with the crazy radicalized politics of the NRA. I hope they start speaking up. I hope my book empowers them to do that. I hope that I set an example for them. But, you know, that's where I think the hope is. We also asked Peter if he had any hope, if he thought anything would change. The opponents of gun sales and uh, people who, who are fighting for gun reform are so relatively weak. Their, their feelings are strong, their sentiments are strong, the, the intentions are honorable. But from what I've seen inside that organization and from what I've seen within the gun lobby in the United States, I don't think they have Snowflake's chance in hell at this moment of moving the needle in the direction that I think it needs to move in for there to be gun reform, to cut back on these mass killings that just happen over and over and over again. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Our engagement producers are Aya Al-Milek and Adam Abugad. A special thanks to Frank Smythe for his help and to the great reporting of Tim Mack at NPR, who put out those secret post-Columbine NRA tapes. We'll be back on Wednesday. <laughs>